Welcome to the C Word The Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about working with adult learning. I'm Jenna Mathiasson, an objects conservator based in Kimmelenshire. And I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Hello, everyone. Yeah, hello. And also, this is the uh, return of our mini series about working yeah. with. Really, yeah. really pleased to have another one. Uh, I think we missed one last last season, I think, because we just couldn't, couldn't make it work really with people's schedules and things. Mm-hmm, but I'm mm-hmm. really glad that it's back because I like this series a lot. I like I it. I like this series too. It's also the return of working with blank space learning. learning. Yeah. I'm going to guess that we're going to get some interesting search results from this one because I put adult <laughs> in a title, which is... It's adult, not adult. Come on, everyone. Can you yeah. mind something got it? No, it's, he'll be fine. Uh, I just think the search statistics will be more interesting. Adult learning in museums, I think, is a fairly safe, like, it's a safe search, surely. I mean, maybe it's our fault for the parameters that we have drawn for this episode, you know, like, uh, but how do you, how else do you describe it? No, no. working with learning grown-ups, teaching. No, absolutely. I mean, I, do, music, I don't what? think there's a better way of putting it. Not really. No. Um, at least if you, if you and want most learning. most of the departments are called learning. So it fits with the department names. I totally yeah. see it. Because, uh, you know, I was thinking like, oh, should we just have gone with outreach? But then it sort of doesn't tie in with the other learning no. episode that we did. And, oh. Yeah. There were so many thoughts about this, guys. That's what I'm saying. But anyway, to help us navigate all of these thoughts, uh, we've got a special guest host with us. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. I'm Stella Toonan. I have a background as a museum producer, uh, mainly around kind of creative programmes for adults in learning programmes. Sometimes that's called community engagement, sometimes outreach, sometimes, I guess, public programmes as well. And uh, I used to work in museums for quite a while. Then I did a PhD in community engagement um, at Tate. And I've just finished that and started a new job where I'm uh, running a public engagement programme in East London in Newham to get more people excited about culture, really. Um, So that's a bit broader than museums, but it's still the same, a lot of the same skills. Wonderful. And when you say you've just finished your PhD, this is like two minutes ago, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, this is literally three weeks ago. So I'm still slightly (laughs) recovering from that moment, I must say. (laughs) Congratulations and well done. (laughs) Congratulations and well done. Thank you so much for joining us. All of that sounds amazing. And I do tend to think of this slightly as outreach, but we call it so many different things. I always think that it must be hard to search for jobs in this sector because of all the different things that we call Mm. this this topic, basically. But I like that we've already sort of defined it. It's just working with grown-ups and... Exactly. It's a lot about just kind of getting grown-ups excited about things that they can do culturally, really. That's, yeah, uh, that's a lot exactly. Of kind of, yeah, just having fun and, and, and learning, but in a kind of engaging way. Distinct from learning with kids, because when it's young people, you tend to be going through the school route or, you know, really young babies and focusing a lot on what the parents might like and stuff like that. Whereas this is sort of almost more free form. Yeah. I would imagine it has very different challenges on many levels. Because <laughs> on the other hand, you don't have a curriculum to go from either. Like there's not, there's sort of nothing to draw on that. You've got to make it up yourself. Yeah, sort of it's true. It's true. And I think that's also why it has so many names, because it has so many forms and shapes. And it kind of, mm. it, it can be anything really, like anything that's not an exhibition, but it is out there for the public. And it's not formal learning, which is schools programs, kind of comes mm-hmm. under adult learning. And that, that makes it a really wide ranging, diverse program. 
we've talked a little bit about sort of your your background. How did you get into this? How was this something you found was like your thing that you wanted to do? I'm always curious. Well, I studied creative industries, so not specifically museums, but I ended up working in exhibitions initially after my master's. And I really liked exhibitions, but I kept kind of being more interested in audiences and like the people who would visit those exhibitions than the actual art objects. And I mean, my master's as well, like I didn't do art history, I did creative industries, you know, it's more about kind of what can you do with a museum rather than what's inside the museum in terms of a collection. And I never really noticed that difference until I was kind of in it already and thinking like, why, why do I prefer these kind of things? After I'd worked in in exhibitions for a bit, I kind of moved into being a producer um, and that then led to kind of producing lots of events rather than just exhibitions only. And then I thought, oh, I actually really like the events. But then I kind of broadened that out um, when I uh, took a new job to go to um, to the Imperial War Museums and um, became a public public programming producer there. That's what it was called. Or public engagement, we call that as well. There was a whole change at some point. And the kind of the, the things that we did there were were so like so many different things and had so many different shapes. And I was really excited by that because we did sometimes have like mini pop up exhibitions where we would work with an artist and sometimes around objects. But then we would also do like digital kind of video making programs. And, um, and sometimes it was just a conference or a, a kind of more dedicated like educational event. And then we did like museum lates and an air show, which I guess when you work at the Imperial War Museum, they also have an airfield. So I got to do the whole grant program for an air show. And I'm like, wow, wow. this is very, very different. <laughs> but all of that was included in in adult learning and in kind of public yeah. programming in general. And that just really excited me. So I uh, so I hung around in that area afterwards. Oh, that sounds amazing. How about you, Chloe? Have you done much with adult learning? Well, I, yeah, I think I've facilitated or helped along with quite a few things in small ways. So obviously there's the things like studio tours and things that we are quite familiar with in conservation because we tend to work in really fun looking places. And if you work in a place like I do, which is a really big studio with really big objects. That's quite a sort of juicy thing to let the public see. I think I probably talked about this in the working with learning in kids episode as well, that we we have had groups of school kids in, but the the ones that that really sort of engage with the objects are the groups of adults so there's been things like um heritage open days and stuff like that oh i like um, those i know me too i did a um a sort of <laughs> why did i i immediately thought of the term touch me table it's not called that <laughs> it's object handling sessions <laughs> touch me table it should be called touch me tables. That's fun. I mean, you're welcome to anyone who needs to plan an event and was looking for a stupid name for that. Uh, object handling sessions for, you know, with object handling collections and stuff like that. What else have I done? The most recent one actually was um, working with the community curators for the most recent exhibition that my museum has put on, which is um, Disability Activism. And there was a group of community curators and we thought it would be a really good opportunity to give them some object handling training so that if they felt like they wanted to they could interact with the objects more and you know the reactions ranged from oh I'm not really interested in the objects I'm interested in the stories or I'm terrified of the objects so I won't but thanks very much for telling me about them to oh excellent I get to handle the things that's fantastic 
So I suppose that kind of thing. But I've not really sort of worked on big events, I suppose. It doesn't have to be big. Not everything has to be big. <laughs> no, that's true. Better if it isn't, in my opinion. <laughs> but I always wonder, though, because it feels like to kind of to combine conservation and public programs in any shape, the only thing that people come up with is object handling. And I always think, oh, there's mm. so much more, though. There's so many things that it could do. I think there's lots that can be done. Absolutely. Well, that's it's the wall, isn't it? It's the that barrier that we put up, and we've done an episode on um, touchy, well, touching in collections before. But it is that sort of the first step to preservation is to limit contact. Um, so, cue Jenny pulling a facial expression. <laughs> <laughs> I get that we say that we prevent damage, but really. What are you preventing? You're preventing someone seeing some art. You're preventing someone having a having a, a tactile experience with an object. That, w- w- what kind of b- is that? <laughs> no. Uh, which is why I like that we say that we work in collections care or we're collections mm. care professionals because we mm. care for the things. But it's it's not about preventing people having having a moment with an object <laughs> like that you know like that's that's not what we're about so um i like the word anyway. care though because there's something in care that's about objects obviously and collections but there's also something really human in it and it's also yes. kind of it it means that you can also care for like for audiences and for people in the museum and i think yeah. that's often where you know kind of public programs meet other kind of object-based programs because in yes. the end, it's all about care and on, on every level of that kind of, of that word, I guess. Oh, beautiful. Can't agree more. Oh, we may be harming the objects by keeping them from people. Yeah. How about you, Jenny? Do you have experience in working with adult learning? I love that when I looked at this this topic, I was like, no. <laughs> and, loads, come on. <laughs> and then I had to actually think about it. And I was like, oh, wait, no, I do. Um, I think it. I think I got caught up in the learning bit. Like, I feel like I don't teach people things. I feel like Mm -hmm. teaching has a very different sort of structure to it, even though I also do that. But like, I don't (laughs) think of myself as a teacher is perhaps where it's at. Like, and I do talk to people all the time, usually outside of the sector, you know, about collections care and, and how to make things last longer or all sorts of stuff like that. But Somehow it just wasn't in my head when I looked at this topic. And it wasn't until I like properly looked at the mind map that you drew up, Chloe, that I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, duh, I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what did you do for the last two weeks? Sat in a gallery and cleaned things in front of people so they could come and talk to me about the things. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's public engagement. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, I do do that. I do do that. How about talking about the groups of people that we work with? Ooh, okay. I say we. I'm looking hard at Stella here. Because <laughs> <laughs> hey, it could include us. How dare you? <laughs> it could include us, definitely. Well, I mean, the other people in museums or the other people in heritage in her- heritage groups, your colleagues as well, mm. obviously. But on my list here, I've got community groups, artists. Of course, those could be the same things. Um, I mentioned disabled groups as well. We've got, I mean... Me being terrible at acronyms, send groups and projects is another thing on my list. And send for people who are also bad at acronyms and don't know is special needs, special special educational needs and disabilities. Oh, yeah, yeah. Correct? that sounds right. Excellent. Yes. The audiences and the groups that museums work mm-hmm. with, I think, are often very undiverse, non-diverse. 
diverse, whatever the word Ooh, is. Shocker. It's like it's sh- shockingly, <laughs> yes. exactly. It's shockingly not diverse at all. And I think it would be so much easier to be better at it, mm. but it's sometimes a lack of time. It's sometimes a lack of interest, which is the worst type probably for when things go wrong. But there's often also just a, a kind of a lack of confidence of how, how to think differently about audiences and what can be done. And I think, um, you know, there are obviously departments who work on audience research and are really trying to figure, figure out that question. And it's not an easy question necessarily, but there's also lots of departments, I think, who sometimes just are a bit scared of like, oh, but what if it's a different audience and they'll need different things and what do we do? And they kind of, they, they don't, they don't know what to do or they um, haven't had the exposure to learn from, from different projects. And I think adult learning programs are often ones where there is quite a lot of experience of really different types of audiences because that's, it's the main program that focuses on audiences and on attracting different voices, different experiences, different kind of backgrounds to museums. And I think often also with funding, I guess, for museums, those programs are sponsored in ways where they, um, where the funding requirements are that the audiences need to be audience who are, who are new to art or museums or history or audiences who are underrepresented in museums already. So it's often in adult learning where you find the most diverse approaches to trying to get people in and the most um, experience and confidence because of that. And I think, again, like kind of there could be more collaborations between those departments and any any other departments and museums to try and share out that knowledge a little bit more and make it easier for everyone to to think about audiences in new ways. Um, but it happens very little, I think. Can you give us an example of the difference in audience building that you've worked on in your roles like your current role and roles like mm-hmm. the the ones that you had at um, museum, museums and things? Well, in, in my current role, it is a project that's specifically for underserved audiences. Mm-hmm. Like we, the, the project I work on currently is a um, Creative People and Places project, which is a scheme run by Arts Council where they fund um, boroughs and cities and places that have uh, quite low cultural engagement generally. And the funding is specifically meant to create arts programmes that target audiences who don't usually do much with culture or who wouldn't see themselves as creative people really. And so that's very specific funding to try and make audiences more diverse. And that's very different from many museum programs where I worked on, because those were often just trying to uh, just get like certain numbers of, of engagement and numbers of visitors, but not necessarily from specific groups, mm. as in like maybe a, a, a kind of head of a department might set those those KPIs. But it wasn't often the funding that would say that or the kind of the, the, the complete setup of the program to to reach those audiences. Um, and when it did, it would often be like a one-off project or a kind of a simple, uh, a kind of smaller project that had this particular outcome, but was therefore kind of sidelined because it wasn't part of the core of the core business of the department. And so it's quite it's quite refreshing to work on a project now where it's all about that and where it's really, really thinking through kind of you know how can we get other voices in there and and not just in a tokenistic way or in a way where we feel like you know. For every 10 mainstream voices, there needs to be one different one. Um, but to really kind of turn that on its head and, and, and you know, be much more active uh, about that and much more well, proactive, I guess, about that um, and much more um, innovative about what, what we can do and how we can really reach those people. I think it just echoes my experience when I did work in museums that it did tend mm. to be quite sort of, what can we do for the people who already come here sort of thing or like, 
maybe at most so they can bring some family members in right <laughs> it's like it's yeah yeah not yeah really branching out in terms what of the middle the... class mums mean need yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> how can we how <laughs> we get the nans in <laughs> this is like okay um, who spends most in the cafe <laughs> yes a little bit like that yeah exactly i think it's really crucial to have that those sorts of funding pots that do actually encourages museums mm-hmm. um and heritage venues to sort of actually look at who's who's coming and and how they can get different people in because yeah and it takes it takes a lot more time and effort to mm, get those audiences it in. Does. like it, it takes ages to build up these relationships of trust that people that those kind of communities and those groups really kind of start to trust those museums and those heritage sites to be interesting for them and to be for them at all and also, um, also you've and got to take some risks as well and like do something Completely. a bit different yeah. and that yeah. that can be very scary for people so yeah that's that's exactly. the whole thing but in a project like i'm working on now it's it's uh yeah it's just really nice that that's that that's at the core and the rest is kind of you know the side project well it's been all it's, it's always been the other way around for me in my previous job so mm. it's uh that's a really nice nice different environment to work in what's the difference in the offer with those two approaches there's probably plenty of differences, but I think one is a level of participation and interaction in there sometimes. Ah. I think if you already have an audience who's interested in going to museums mm. and you know they wanna they wanna see a big blockbuster Picasso show, then it's kind of enough to just put lots of Picassos on the wall and they will be excited about that already. Mm-hmm. But if it's uh, a group who doesn't even know Picasso and is definitely not interested, then you have to come up with something else that will tie them in or or that that will just feel interesting and relevant to them and quite often you want to create something that's a bit more participatory because it makes it more fun but actually even to go back a step and to kind of think about like when we make the decision that we're going to do a Picasso show should we not see whether that's actually something that people are interested in that this group would be interested in Uh, if you involve that kind of group in, in in that level of the discussion and they say actually who is Picasso, we don't really necessarily want to know. We're not that interested. But I would love, you know, to just kind of try out painting or I'd love to know a bit more about the the stories of people who live locally, for instance, something that's closer to to their lives and to their hearts. Then that becomes much more relevant for them and it becomes easier to engage with those groups and at the same time more participatory because they've already been part of the discussion of where this museum or the exhibition is going to go in general and it kind of it opens up the decision making but also the kind of the general planning and the project kind of how it runs and it makes it more co-owned I guess with that community as well so you, you get completely different projects that are much more collaborative quite often because of that, maybe also a bit slower, and that need a bit more resource because of that. But they are they are projects that are com- that are shaped in a completely different way, a much more kind of two way conversation rather than a one way show. I guess that's the way I really like it. I've always liked this idea that it's it's not just about coming into a space and looking at what's in front of you, because that works for a lot of things, sure, but it doesn't work for everyone, and it's it's a very um, you just you just sort of there receiving something. Mm. Yeah. Allow us to tell you about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, you know, just informing people. Mm. You know, it's kind of and there is this like this ladder of participation that I that was set up in the, or that was kind of coined by someone in the sixties and it's been used a lot uh, more recently as well. That has like eight levels of engagement and the first one or like someone near the bottom is just kind of informing you mm-hmm. know, it's literally just kind of you know this Present is what the you information. Need to know about Picasso. <laughs> yeah exactly 
and it's it's very top down and it's very you know kind of condescending in a way mm. but it's traditionally very much what museums used to mm. do for a very long time so i feel like we've talked a lot about um exhibitions and at the beginning you said that was something that you moved away from sort of intentionally so what sorts of events do you favor then um for this type of work it could be all kinds really mm-hmm. it's uh it's literally kind of you know the full multimedia range that could be you know we uh, one uh, museum we did a, a film festival actually that Ooh, was all about cool. kind of short films about the topic of the museum which was war in this case and uh and that was a really engaging project where you get a completely different audience you mm. know lots of filmmakers in the room but also just people from the from the local neighborhood who, who really enjoyed that kind of uh, experience much more than they would go to an exhibition sometimes so it could be something like that it could be festivals um anything that kind of you know like an open house kind of idea where where you just open the doors and get people in and there's lots happening or a museum late where it's you know just kind of come and have a drink in our foyer uh, because we've got a dj and there's some other pop-up events that you can enjoy and it kind of it completely plays with that space and with that feeling of like, you know, a, a stuffy, quiet museum. And those can be really nice events that attract very different audiences from, from the usual people who walk in during the day. But it could also be an outreach thing where you actually go into a into a community and you don't even like think about the museum building, that you uh, you kind of do a project with people out where they live and it's maybe about certain objects or you bring a, uh, an object suitcase where there's like handling objects in there or you kind of uh, engage them in some craft workshop around making something. Um, and then at the end, they might go to the actual exhibition and see that the thing that they crafted was inspired by a real work. And suddenly they do have that connection and that context and see the relevance of, you know, why why this could be interesting to them. That makes me want to ask, Chloe, what, what sort of things have you been to as a someone who's participating in these sorts of things like oh i haven't <laughs> but like ha- have you ever been to anything that you would classify as outreachy or and have you visited a gallery where you're not just looking at a uh, just looking at things it's fine if you haven't i was just curious i haven't because the the types of outreach things that i've seen have been well usually i've just missed it because i tend to just pop into somewhere and go oh this is fun i don't tend to sort of see what's on and that kind of thing but i know my museum does things like fabric of protest is one of the programs which is a sort of sewing textile based craft often inspired by the banners and the collection and stuff like that um and it's run by a member of the manchester mmu manchester metropolitan university (laughs) acronyms man um (laughs) And we've done things like, well, the learning team, I, I haven't. I've just said, what about the pests? Um, the learning team has done things like bought wildflowers in and done um, flower dyeing, but it's not dyeing oh, it. It's okay. losing the imprint of the flowers. Oh, cool. So that's sort of making and stuff. And whenever anyone asks me, oh, how can conservation be involved? I'm always like, we should do potato printing. Oh, wait, that's nothing to do with conservation. <laughs> I just like the Brilliant idea of it. Yeah, yeah. Just want to do potato printing. I love it. Exactly. exactly. Uh, well, you know, how do you, how do you talk about you know, the manufacture of printed posters without getting some people to do some printing? Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely been to um, 
festivals and stuff like in conjunction with museums where they've had people come and bring a printing press for example mm-hmm. and just have pe- you know, let people have a go like this is what an old-fashioned printing press does like yeah. before we had printers this is what we did is it not fun and then yeah. people get to take something home as well you know like you know like here's a here's a cool slogan on on a piece of colorful paper like that's that sort of stuff is amazing and like builds very lasting memories and mm. you know and it's something to take away as well which is really nice uh, yeah, I, I really like that sort of stuff. I think one of the favorite things that I've gone to as a participant um, mm-hmm. is probably creative writing stuff in in galleries. Oh. That's really fun. It can be for exhibitions or for the stuff that's on permanent display. And it was really sort of a intergenerational thing as well. Like there were people in their late teens to people in their 80s. And it's the same when people do life drawing in museums. I always really love seeing people draw things that they see because it's mm, like yeah. such a different way of experiencing that object and really looking at, at elements of it. And I remember I was at the V&A uh, years ago. I don't know if this is still a rule. But I was uh, drawing something that I saw there in a notebook just for my own use, you know, nothing, nothing special. And a guard was like, no, 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 you can't draw. What? I was like, what? It's an yeah, it was like, as kind of as if I was taking photos, it was like, no, no, you can also not take drawings. And I'm not sure if that was a rule for that particular exhibition or if that was something wow. that the artist had stipulated. But I was like, that's one way to kill everyone's enthusiasm in this place. I mean, that just felt like such a weird rule. And had it for a while. It wasn't the only exhibition that they had that rule for. But again, it might have been specific to those few exhibitions rather than a museum. Okay, well, we need to hear from somebody in the V&A. Is that a thing? (laughs) Because I thought that drawing was one of the main things that people did in museums. That's wild. Surely. And again, it's part of this like aura of museums of like places where you can't Mm. do things, where you can't do things mostly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah really exactly. you're allowed to do things i'd really like to hear about the kind of things you do outside of museums and whether there's things that we can take in museums and bring them to museums the other thing i wanted to ask was working with artists um how is your working with artists whether they do tri- like things like the learning events and the hands-on stuff or whether it's involving them to produce something I think the artist question is an interesting yeah. one. Let's maybe talk about that one first. Yeah. Because I think quite often when museums go like, oh, we want to do something with audiences and with community groups mm. and, uh, you know, we want it to be really interactive and co-created, they kind of go like, okay, so we'll just hire an artist and they will do a co-creation project. And they ah. leave a lot of that responsibility to the artist. That happens a lot. It's a it's an artistic field. I mean, there are community artists and socially engaged artists, so it's not, you know, it's not a... a, a weird question to ask but still it puts a lot of responsibility for change and for thinking about audiences in different ways on artists when actually I personally think it should be a lot more with museums because often you get that an artist runs a brilliant engagement project and they get everyone really involved and you know sometimes in in really kind of big projects like at Tate when they when they got um, Tanya Bruguera in to do uh, the what's it the Turban Hall Commission uh, which is almost a year-long project um, and she kind of, she created this neighbours group and that was a community group that was all involved in setting it up and in deciding what should happen. And it's, it kind of, the buy-in from Tate is then something that I'd be interested in, like kind of how much would they actually then see that as a project that they can use to change and that they can help, uh, kind of, that they can use to help themselves think about their role towards audiences and community groups. Because the risk is that when this artist kind of finishes this project, that they then leave to go on to somewhere else and that suddenly that whole relationship with that community is gone mm. um, and the whole buy into the project as well. 
And I think what was interesting with Tate is that the artist, uh, Tanya Bruguera, kind of asked, well, made a stipulation to her project where she said that this community group needed to be celebrated and that she um, re requested from the director at Tate Modern that one of the wings could have the name of a community member on it to balance it out against the sponsor name. <sighs> Um, because this community member was equally important to the, you know, the neighbourhood that Tate Modern is in. And the Tate director agreed. And now, well, and then they turned that building into the Natalie Bell building, who is this um, really lovely single mum who lives in Southwark and who was celebrated by her community to be that special member. Who, oh, who would wow. be, That's amazing. Uh, the kind of the name bearer of that museum. Mm -hmm. And what I really loved about what happened then is that the director at Tate Modern, Frances Morris, who I think is just leaving soon, said that she was so committed to that name and that she really wanted to celebrate that, that she was going to make sure that the building would keep that name until the end of her tenure as a director. Um, and so that building is still the Natalie Bell building. I don't know what will happen now that she's leaving, but it's like it has been that for at least five, six years, I think. That's that wonderful. Point. And that's such, exactly, that's such a nice way to really show that, you know, it, it it might be the artist who instigated it, but it also showed that that was real buy-in from the museum itself to keep it that way and to really celebrate that and make sure that it was still there and present in, in their practices as well. Yes, artists are sometimes used as a vehicle, but they can also be used as the, the, the catalyst who just kicks off a much bigger process. Um, and those are the projects I really like seeing. How would you summarise your research? And I think we didn't ask you at the beginning, but I'd really like to know a bit more about what you've spent the last four years doing. Well, I uh, my research is on co-creation mm -hmm. because I felt that that was, that was a buzzword that people were interested yeah. in, but a lot of people had no idea what it meant and I didn't at the beginning. So I kind of wanted to figure out what it was. But then I kind of, I mainly wanted to think about how that word is kind of, useful in a museum context because a lot of of um research on co-creation focuses on communities right because it's all about co-creating with the community and how could that benefit that community which is a really important question but it's what a lot of people look at already and i thought actually i'm quite interested in how this concept of co-creation of like radically collaborating with other groups how that can actually affect the museum itself like if you as a museum if you say you want to do co-creation what are you actually committing to? What changes do you then need to make? How do you start looking differently at, at what you do and how much power you hold and how you might share that? And also notice how reluctant you are to share that quite often and where sometimes these relationships break down because you're not ready to share that power or to do something with that or to really kind of make a change that goes beyond the, the, the tokenistic kind of initial bit of change. So I kind of ended up doing more of an organisational change study almost on on three museums on Tate, but also the Withworth in Manchester um, and Queen's Museum in New York and the Borough of Queen's. Because all of all three had just embarked on or were just doing kind of big co-creation projects to look at, you know, how how is that changing these museums? Are they letting themselves be changed or are they resisting and to what degree? And so it became a, a proper kind of museum studies thing rather than an audience studies thing. And so it became, yeah, a kind of a question of like, what's the extent of change and how can we make sure that it doesn't kind of end when a project ends as well? Mm. That's something that my museum really, um, I was I was just going to launch into the word struggles with. It doesn't really struggle with it. It's more just aware of the danger of that, essentially, because we, um, for the last few years, been doing programmed years around, say, the different um 
particular anniversaries like the um 2017 was the 50 year anniversary of the partial legalization of lesbian gay activities rights and all of that since then we've been sort of the word essentially has been better not lose this lose the work that we've done essentially and the same went for 2018 which was obviously the uh, centenary of the women's rights to vote and all of the connections made through that work and so on so as conservation I'm aware of these conversations and I'm you know everyone knows the the work that everyone in the museum I should say knows the work that we put into the programs and and will put into anything going forward but the conversation is very often like doing our best not to lose the contact or lose that momentum but the struggle is always money and time and you're absolutely right if the change isn't made then it's a constant project and no one has the time to just pile up projects but it's also because we always think of projects as a separate thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the three museums I looked at, like two of them were just embarking on a one-year co-creation programme that was meant as a transformational kind of institutional programme that would change their organisations. And you're like, I mean, if you're only going to give funding for one mm-hmm. year, how can you expect that organisation to completely change? Like that's, that you're just fun, you're just seat funding the very beginning of a process that's going to be much bigger and longer but also kind of they then had to be really creative about like how do we now implement this learning because indeed there's no point in having a really lovely year and a lovely program mm. and then making this nice looking publication at the end that says you know this is everything you learned and then to never kind of think about that again because that would be the end of the contract that mm. the you know the, the lead person of that project yeah. would be on mm. and they go and then it's gone yeah. So it's um it's also about kind of how can you use that project to really kind of question and challenge some of your business as usual so that you can use that money for that year to actually really kind of change some of the, the processes and some of the like really practical organizational structures that will help you to to keep that momentum going later on as well. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a different, much more sustainable way of thinking about it that doesn't always happen in project work because project work just kind of needs to sh- to show project outcomes mm. for funders when actually these were much bigger outcomes that needed to be met and it's and it, they didn't always do it successfully but at least it kind of it, it created different conversations about what it could be doing and where that could go um and they are really interesting conversations to have but there's often not the time and the money to think about these things mm-hmm. but a, a project like that kind of forced them to and um and it makes it really interesting because suddenly museums can become quite different different institutions if you really start tackling some of the proper kind of underlying foundational beliefs about what a museum could be they didn't always manage to you know change them completely (laughs) but at least they could start challenging them a little bit and let people think a bit different about them um and not just museum staff but also audiences because that's sort of part of it you've got to be brave like with all of these things and with outreach as well especially if you're trying to reach new groups Got to be willing to have a raven the uh, <laughs> not a raven the store maybe but you know you gotta <laughs> you gotta at least entertain the notion that you could do something differently. You know, a raven the store would be amazing though. But it's, uh, <laughs> but it's um, no, it's kind of. I think what what worked about these projects was that they really kind of saw themselves as experiments, mm. and as an experiment, they were also allowed to fail. Like they were allowed to take risk and to say mm. something didn't work out. But at least we uh, we learned from yeah. it, and so that was success rather than the project was success. Mm. 
as you were speaking, it just occurred to me one of the biggest ways that conservation can help is to simply be involved. And this is obviously this is talking very much museums based still. And I'm not encouraging everyone who's planning events to come up with wild ideas and, you know, (laughs) call up conservation and say, can we do this? Like involve (laughs) conservation earlier because you might be really surprised at what is possible. I think one of the things that I struggle with in my job is reminding people that things are okay. And mm. this is this is something that is really a factor when it comes from time comes to time and resource that people know everyone's stressed and stretched and there's no time and there's no money. But involve people in the conversation and you might be surprised at what can be done and what people are happy to prioritize and what people can find solutions to that you might not think of. Like if you were to say to conservation, or oh, can we have a sleepover at the museum or can we have a film night or what it might be, you know, of course you can. That's not a problem. Or it could be, well, actually that's a problem, but if you did it like this and that would be much better or a sleepover, no, but a film night or do it on Sunday or, you know, anything. I'm going to be honest about 70% of any objection of mine has always been solved with, okay, just arrange for more cleaning afterwards. <laughs> so all I'm really worried about is the crumbs and the pest coming in. And it's just like, if you just clean afterwards, don't care. <laughs> Knock exactly. yourself out. Yeah, exactly. Like 70% really, of my worries. I really don't just want wine there. in the galleries. That's my thing. I don't want wine and crisps in the galleries. Other than that. I don't care for red <laughs> wine, but I'll make exceptions for white wine. <laughs> I've got a lot of open display textiles, man. True, you do. <laughs> we have very different different sorts of collections that we mind sometimes. I must say as well, at the Imperial War Museum, we, we were not allowed to have red wine, but mm. it wasn't necessarily for the objects because most of them were, were like tanks mm. and yeah. things. Yeah, like, I was going to say, probably be wine, fine. <laughs> but it, yeah, but it was the uh, the, the concrete floor. Uh, oh, because it, somehow it didn't have the right kind of, I don't know, wax on it and red wine would soak into it immediately and never come out. But it kind of, it always seemed annoying that it had to be the floor and not the objects that would kind of set that rule. That is true. That's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> There's lots of random restrictions. And this is what I mean with museum structures. It can be anything. Mm. I'm not just saying, you know, kind of like actual kind of professional um, agreements or, or or even kind of the way that you work with audiences or think about the, their stories or decolonialism or anything like that. Sometimes it's just kind of, you know, whatever wax they put on the floor or whether, <laughs> mm. you know, whether the opening hours could be half an hour later so that one particular community can finally actually be there because they can never make another time. If you're sitting and listening to this and you want to put on a learning event where the goal is to teach something specific to people, okay. to an audience, and what might you get in return? What, how, In what way could you change the event in order for that to be a two-way street? Ooh. This, is, this is more like a, just a discussion prompt. I think what I get excited about is often to make an invitation and say, you know, I, I can see that you're interested in this or, um, you know, somebody who just kind of has a, yeah, some kind of interest in whatever happens to be in that museum and to learn more about kind of how they see that and what they can do with that. Mm-hmm. And for instance, I mean, this is a, an example uh, for my current job. We wanted to run a project with young people. And um, this isn't a formal school project. It was just kind of with a group of young people who are interested in media. We have a we have a, a podcasting studio actually in our building as well. 
And uh, we know that they were, they're, they're interested in media and they were quite interested in working on something like a podcast. So we kind of, we just invited them to a creative brain work, brainstorming workshop where we'd spend a whole day thinking about what we could be doing. And that was all facilitated workshop where they got to do like mind mapping and kind of a whole democratic voting exercise about what they kind of, what they thought culture could be. And then we asked them like, okay, so if you're interested in all of these different things, then whose stories would you find interesting? If there was anyone in New Orleans, London, where I work, who you could interview about any of these topics, who would you be interested in? And they were like, oh, well, uh, that's this rapper that I listen to and I'd love to hear more about what they do, or this tattoo artist, or um, this, this, you know, my language teacher. And they came up with a whole list. And then we were like, okay, great. So let's now invite these people <gasps> and actually get them in a room, in a podcasting studio, a real one, um, you know, with all the microphones that you guys have as well let's interview them and we'll give you interview training and we'll kind of, you know, we'll, we'll prepare you for it and you'll be the podcast host. And some of the of the young people, they're all between 11 and, and 19. Some of them went like, but, but like, like a real podcast. <laughs> they're like, yeah. But like a, a real one that's going to go online. They're like, yeah, people can listen to it. Like you'll actually be a real podcast host. And they were just so mind blown by that. That would be an option. Mm. Um, and now currently, like these past few weeks, we've been making all the recordings and the podcast is going to go online in in, uh, in June as part of New and Heritage Month. So it has a whole festival around it as well. But it was kind of that that model of like, you know, we know that they're excited about something, mm. but they don't really know what that could be. Mm. Like they didn't come up with podcasts because they didn't know that they could be a podcast mm. host. They didn't think it wasn't that one was of the options. Yeah. 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 And so we could have waited and asked them to see if, if, you know, if they would come up with something like that. But I don't think they would have because they didn't have that confidence to mm-hmm. really kind of, you know, claim that thing for themselves. Um, but by kind of asking them for their interests and kind of just seeing like, you know, what themes are in here that you find interesting to work with. They got really excited about it and they're doing brilliantly as hosts as well. I mean, it's really impressive to see an 11 year old interview an, an adult uh, kind of new and famous musician you know you know kind of quite big names for them like they're real proper kind of fans of these people and and to interview them so confidently and it kind of makes me think like I'm I'm learning so much from this project and so much about what interests people and what excites them and how to engage them and how to build these relationships and also how to learn with, how to work with young people which I haven't done very often and it's actually it's teaching me so much but it's also teaching them a lot of confidence, I think, and showing what can be possible if you really set your mind to it and if you let yourself be creative and, and you know, and kind of see opportunities and things. And nobody set out to learn the specific thing that they are learning, but we all knew that we were going to get something from it and we all knew that it could be really inspiring. And you always end up with lots of new learning that you kind of then think, like, God, I'm so happy that I that I came across that and that now I have that as as one of the experiences and expertises that I'll take with me for the rest of my life so uh that would be my example it's only one but it has all the other ones it does I think I agree with the the unexpectedness is really the beauty of these things like a lot of the time I suppose if I was to give like a really boring example of like me conveying knowledge then it's like I do a webinar aimed at the public and I sort of vaguely know that they will have no grounding in the same things that I do so it's sort of just talking them through what I do, what I have to think about as part of my job and some of the things that they might want to think about if they're going to look after something of theirs. But there's still an elemental Q&A at the end, right? For this, like mm. they still ask me questions and I learn loads from from them when they ask me things, you know, so I still learn things. But my favorite things are when people just ask me questions, which is what I think of gallery work as when I, I'm in a gallery cleaning something or working on something, then 
people can just come up and ask me questions and I love those uh, because I never know what they're going to ask. <laughs> and they're, those are the best times. You have the best conversations with people who ask you a hundred million questions about why you're swabbing a bird or <laughs> or who are in fact trying to tell you something that's important to them. Like it can be about the mm-hmm. history of the room or what the museum used to be like when they used to visit as a child or uh, that they know loads about the curator who got this collection together in the first place. It's just knowledge sharing and it's like really organic way just it was just people talking uh, I think it's just like conversations is the uh, simple answer and mm. those conversations can be in galleries and stuff like that and I wish I could have them more to be honest but I'm not based in a museum anymore so I, I rely on when people need me to be there and doing a thing for them but it's it's lovely like they are the best times because then yeah, I suppose in theory you might be teaching someone something but ultimately I'm learning loads as well. Yeah, I think the most powerful ways of learning are often just conversations I think you're right and it's also like the ways that you work with audiences is also not a kind of a, a rocket science it's just relationships yeah. it's just how you work and how you talk to any other normal human being yeah. And it's sometimes kind of bringing it down to those really common things where you realise like, oh yeah, that's that's actually what works best. I'm kind of in, in well, in Newham in East London, the, there's lots of events that are kind of like repair shops, which are really popular. Yeah. And I mean, that's not necessarily conservation in the same way, but it's kind of the idea that people can bring an object mm. that they like and then like, you know, have someone professional who they trust look at that and help them with it. Like that's that's a really popular model that works for lots of communities who would never dare to go to an actual museum with their object but would come to a, a local thing like that for conservation that's it's such such a hidden thing sometimes like that it can be quite hard to engage it's sometimes about the visibility of it yeah. and it's really good that you guys sometimes sit in galleries and do that actively mm. to show people like you know it's it's people doing this mm. and it's you know people that you can talk to and that have really interesting stories and you can you know you can have a discussion and a conversation about that I think we could do a lot more with trying to be visible and actually... Yeah, we could. Finding a way to be outside of the museum, that will be very good. I'd love to do that. But it's money as well, isn't it? It's time and money. And if you're, if you're chasing your tail already... Absolutely. But I'm curious, like, if your museum went to you and said, we've got funding so that you can be outside of the studio mm. one day a week, what mm-hmm. would you do? Where would you go? Like, what, what would you... Would you have a pop-up shop in a shopping centre oh where you sat and did things and answered questions? Would you go to an established repair cafe? Would you sit in a church? Oh. Would you? What, what would you do? Like All of those things. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I'd be very excited by all of those ideas. <laughs> As usual, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections. And honestly, it's mostly comments this time. And nice ones. Nice ones. And it's only really because I've been really bad at actually reading these out. So they've sort of been piling up like a little like a little feel good pile in (laughs) in the podcast inbox. And now I've looked at them in guilt for so long that I thought, well, you know what, we'll just do a little thing here where we where where we read some of them out. Because that's the point of the section is to do that. So uh, I reckon we should. Oh nice. Okay. Shoot. Where have you got? First of all, you know how we were both really nervous about the accreditation episode, yeah? Oh boy, yeah. Because <laughs> we basically were like, hi, we're going to say all the things about accreditation and uh, hi, don't hate us, smiley face. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much exactly what it was. But we've only had nice, lovely things that people have said 
Um, people have been an absolute joy. And a lot of people have said that uh, whilst they themselves have gone through accreditation, they agree that the form is a nightmare and that it, mm-hmm. f- from their point of view, was actually the hardest part, which I think was really heartening to hear because yes. it's always nice to hear that other people have you know struggled through the same bits as you have. <laughs> Someone says, um, I once asked about a payment plan. So this is again about accreditation and the cost. Mm-hmm. I was told that when they did uh-huh. it last time, no one took them up on the option. Hmm. So I was told that when I applied, they could look at individual requests to break up payment. Now, that's nice, but it does put the onus on the person again to be like, hey, you yeah. look, I'm poor. So I think it should just be a default option to be able to break up payment. How hard is it to just have the mm. option as a, I can pay in three chunks wherever I go now because PayPal lets you. So I'm just saying, yeah. oh yeah, why can't you just have an option like that enabled? Does it have to be fancy? Yeah. I, I just feel like that doesn't sound that complicated, really. Uh, I just think it should be an option all of the time. It doesn't matter how many people need it. The point is that some people will need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the point is there was some lovely feedback and we have received other comments uh, mm. in our in our inboxes about people who appreciated mm. the episode. Thank you so much for telling really us. Really nice thing. Because we were yeah. absolutely bricking it. So thank you. <laughs> we really were. Thank we you. We thought we were going to make loads of enemies. And, and we might have. That's... They might just not talk to us, but that's it's, fine. I mean, yeah, exactly. But yeah, the yeah, main yeah. point yeah. is that some of you found it relatable and good and I think think that's that's the, that's the thing isn't it? yeah exactly that's that is like half the point of us doing this isn't it just that you know it needs to be talked about so yeah thanks guys then we've got Katie writing in. Uh, Katie says they're a freelance curator at the start of their career, currently working on their first exhibition, but it's still in the research and development stages. Oh, uh, wow. They said they work night shifts because freelance work is really precarious and that they're just listening to the podcast, which is giving them a different perspective on objects and how they're handled. And uh, yeah, just sort of thanks for, for keeping keeping them company at night. I thought that was really sweet. There's much, much more in the email, but I'm just so happy to see that. Oh, thanks. I'm glad we're keeping you company. That's so nice. Yeah. I'm always so happy to hear. Obviously, I'm delighted when conservators listen, obviously. Yeah, of course. There's this sort of special type of delight when I hear about people who aren't conservators listening because they're not conservators. It's so nice. Oh, I found another one. I found another one in the inbox about accreditation. Uh, Andrew says, hi, I just wanted to thank you for your recent podcast on accreditation. I've just moved back to Canada after living in the US and I'm finding the Canadian system similar to the ICON process and very daunting. Uh, I dragged my feet getting my PA status. I do not know what that is uh, through AIC in the USA. And now I have to jump through new hoops in a new country. Oh, that sounds rough. Oh, I love hoops. They're great, aren't they? <laughs> they keep you fit. What kind of red tape will we meet today? Uh, it's great to hear the discussion and how I'm not the only one who isn't sure if it's uh, worth it even as I'm going through the process. Thanks again for all your podcasts. It's great to hear all the topics that rattle at the back of my head discussed. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Let us know if you've got any more topic ideas. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Do let us know. We are always open to that. Oh, and Lauren writes in and says, uh, they'd just like to uh, pass on some information about potential funding sources for conservation students. So listen up, people. Oh, nice. The worship- funding sources. Oh. Burr, burr, burr. <laughs> funding sources. Burr. Uh, the Worshipful Company of Arts Scholars is interested in conservation and does consider applications from individuals undertaking a master's degree or PhD in the UK. 
Non-UK citizens can also apply if the research topic is British in focus. Um, sweet. We will pop a link to that uh, in the show Defo. notes because that is Defo. a good shout. Thank you for yeah. sharing, Lauren. Thank you so much. Uh, Jennifer writes in and says, Greetings from an American emerging conservator and occasional seaward listener. Comment on the website. It would be great to have a single page with a compact list of all the podcast episodes by name, linking to the individual podcast posts. That is entirely fair. That is a good yeah. point, Jennifer. Uh, at the moment, you have yeah. to sort of scroll through all of the latest ones, and that can be a bit of a pain in the butt. I mean, I know that because sometimes I need to find a thing, and I find it easier just to... <laughs> Just to use Google. So you're not wrong. I should absolutely do that. Good point, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Uh, I will see what I can do. Uh, it's not actually complicated. I just need to get around to it. Because again, we don't get paid oh, for this. And Jill writes in and says, uh, hey, Chloe and Jenny, I just wanted to thank you and Beth uh, for the great Aww. advice from season 12, episode one on job interviews. I'm an emerging conservator based in Canada. And this episode dropped a few days before a big interview to be a contract conservator. After listening to the advice on the show, I went through the museum's database to understand the collection and really considered other projects from my committee work. During the interview, I was able to stop myself and say I didn't think I was answering the question the way they wanted and could they repeat the question so I could give them a more correct answer. Probably the most calm I've ever managed to be during an interview and I got the job! Round of applause! Absolutely! I started this week and it's already been a great experience. Thank you for the episode and helping me figure out how to show off my knowledge and experience to improve my interview skills. Well Regards, done. Jill. Well done, well Jill! Done. Oh. So I do remember you forwarding me that that email and yeah every now I, and again i do actually remember to show chloe <laughs> these things and then they fall out of my head again uh but here we are actually saying i probably that. cried at this <laughs> one i was it was just it's just oh my when it's hard to do this and to organize it and to spend all the free time in the world those are the reasons you those know those are the comments that make it worthwhile actual people actually finding it useful that's phenomenal, isn't it? Oh, thanks, guys. And as always, do please write in. Do please send us yes, messages. Yes. Do please message us on any of the things that we're on. We do read them. We do. <laughs> I'm just so bad at email sometimes, but we do read them and they do make us very happy. So please do keep them coming. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Hey, guys, it's Jenny. Did you know that we don't get paid to create this podcast? I mean, you probably do. I keep harping on about it, but that's why we rely on the support of our listeners to help us keep creating new episodes. If you enjoy our content, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as $1 per month, you can just help us keep going. If you would like to support us, and we realize that that's a big ask in today's economy, then please go to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute smashers. Speaking of which, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest patron, Eric. Thank you so much, Eric. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you'll be listening to Stella Tunan, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about business. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at the Seaword Podcast, find us on the Fediverse at the Seaword Podcast at Glamorous, 
or simply email us on thesecretpodcast at gmail.com. The intro now to music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Thank you.